this morning we're going to continue in worship through the word. As we do so, I'm going to ask that you would join me in prayer. We do this because when we open the word of God, we want God's spirit to be leading us. We don't want our own preconceived ideas or even bringing what we want to the text, but to hear God speak. That goes for me as well as you. And so uh, I hope that you come with that same heart. Join me as we invite God to lead us today. Father God, we've come here into your house uh, to sing praises, to, to celebrate what you've done, the miracle of the cross, the miracle of salvation, the knowledge of the kingdom of God that you have just given to us, undeserving sinners. And today we thank you so much for that gift. We thank you for the gift of your word that's been instructing your disciples for thousands of years. We thank you for the preservation of the word. We thank you for the conviction that your word brings into our lives. I pray, Father God, that we're the kind of people that would dare to read it and dare to ask hard questions about what does this mean for me. Father God, I pray that in our lives, your spirit would be manifest through our obedience to your word. That in our following of Jesus, in our accepting him as savior, we give you praise. And in our obedience to his commands, we give you glory because we know we can't do it without you. So today as we enter into this time of rest, this time of, of setting at your feet to hear you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts and lives that if we feel moments of conviction today, Father, we would receive them as a conviction from your hand and not a human manipulation, Father. And if there's anything in me or in this, this place today that is just trying to manipulate, I pray it would go away, that we would not be deceived, but we'd be led by your spirit. You are glorifying yourself, and we just want to be part of that glory. And so today, Father, by your will and in your way, bring glory to your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his mighty name. Amen. All right, so we're going to, we're starting to do a couple weeks here um, with this concept uh, of buy, buying the field. And um, I don't know, uh, I want to read the, the scripture uh, with you, and then I want to talk kind of about you know, just what God's been doing with this idea, you know, and I hope it's an idea for you too, but it's just this, this thing that God's had on my heart for a while. And, uh, and but I want to share this verse of scripture with you. I'm going to pull up on the screens um, this is from the Gospel of Matthew, and it's Matthew uh, 13, chapter 13, verse 44. Yeah, if I did anything. Jesus is teaching about what the kingdom of heaven is like, and it comes at the end of a bunch of teachings which you've heard, heard before. You can look at the context if you want to, and you can remember that he's talking about, you know, sowing the seed and the seed returning with a, with a, um, a void or returning with a, a, an abundance of harvest. But this idea, and, and this is what Jesus says. I love this verse. This is what Jesus says. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field, right? I mean, Jesus is talking about a reality that we get to have in Christ. And this is him, you know, but he's teaching his disciples about there's something about the kingdom of God that when you see it, you want it, you know it, it's a treasure, you're excited about it, and you can't, you'll do anything to have a piece of it. This is coming from this experience where Jesus has been rebuking Pharisees, rebuking religious leaders, because they're dead. And, and this is a conviction that, that we can have today that if there's not something about our seeking of God, if there's not something about our, our, our looking for treasure, finding it and, and, and celebrating that, that we're just as dead as those religious leaders of the day. We, we have no more hope in us than they have in them if we're dependent upon some kind of manufactured, manufactured energy. I wonder, read that verse with me. It says, he says, it is like treasure 
hidden in a field. And I wonder, looking at our lives today, what would it take for something to be a real treasure to you? I mean, what, what would it be that if you found it, you would, you would be so excited, you, you, you couldn't wait to go and, 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 and get, a, get a piece of it, you know what I mean? To go, to go and secure that, to, to go and, and to, to, to cling to that, to, to hold it, you know, as your own. I don't know if there's many things in our life that we treasure anymore. There are things that we elevate. There are even things that we worship. But what is precious to you? What would it take to have something be really, really precious in your life? Jesus' answer to this question for his followers is, it's finding the kingdom of God. That, that, that that's the, the most precious. Jesus talked about storing up treasure in heaven, didn't he? Jesus talked about eternal matters through temporal circumstances, right? And so many of us have no concept of what a treasure, a treasure that we have. This is kind of weird how it came to me. I told you I was going to share with you a little bit how this came to me, but how, how many of you have enjoyed these storms? Any, any storm? Yeah, a few of you. I'm one of those people that enjoy storms, you know? And I'm also a dad and a husband and a night owl. I'm going to explain why all that works together in a minute. So Wednesday night, I was laying in bed trying to sleep when my phone went off, and it was a Highland weather red alert. Do you guys get those calls at 2 in the morning? Yeah, isn't that fun? Wake up. There's rain coming. Thanks. <laughs> you know, and I mean, I shouldn't be unappreciative. Thank God we have a community that cares enough to warn us. So I listen to it. It says, high winds and hail. And I'm listening for the word tornado because that's what I'm really, you know what I mean? Tornadoes are no joke. By, by the way, you know, I, I'm not making light of this because like that storm uh, yesterday with that, that beer tent, it's tragedy. There's Tragedy. And so I want to I wanna be a good husband and a good father. I let my wife sleep. I'm, I'm on, now I'm on alert. You know, I'm on like the ninth watch. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I'm like ready. And then here comes the sirens. You guys have sirens in Greenville? They go, you know, I was raised in a generation just behind the generation got on their desks when those things went off the air raid sirens. You know what I mean? Because that's going to protect you. I, I was raised in a generation where we were scuttled into the hall and got down and we would just giggle. <laughs> You know, and we were poking, we were out of class. I mean, it was the, but, but, but when you're a father, whenever you're a husband, those sirens go off in the hair and your neck stands up and you go, when should I spring into action? Okay, that was a little bit of a setup. So here's the thing. So I, I decide, this is what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna go out and assess how bad this is. And if it gets bad enough, I'm gonna wake up my daughter who's upstairs and my son who's upstairs and my wife who's upstairs and drag him downstairs with my other son who's downstairs already and I don't have to worry about, right? Because <laughs> he's in the safe place. Um, speaking of treasure. So I go sit on the front porch. Anybody set up and watch that storm Wednesday night? The first one that came through? It was quiet. It was dark. I was like two in the morning. And I'm sitting out there on my little stoop. I'm just watching. And I mean to tell you, now listen to me. All of a sudden, the whole sky started lighting up. 
You know, sheet lightning. And I was like, whoa, what's going on? And I was waiting. And then the leaves and my trees started, you know, and I'm looking around and I'm starting to think, this could be bad. This could be bad. And I didn't say tornadoes. That's all I was worried about. But I'm watching this storm coming. And I got, I got to tell you something. I was sitting there in like my, my shorts and my T-shirt and no shoes, socks. You know, I was sitting. I got no defense against this thing that's coming. And I started to feel really small. I started to feel really insignificant, really powerless. A verse came to mind. Ah, uh, that's not true. A person came to mind. And it was the coming Lord Jesus Christ. And I started, and I don't think we get many glimpses of this anymore, but I started to get this idea, this reality check of the magnitude of the God that we worship and our very small part of his creation. I started to feel overwhelmed. And I started to ask myself questions about what am I ready for this kind of a God that overwhelms me? You sang that song just now with me, didn't you? Spirit of God overwhelmed me. So here's a verse. Because I, I thought, why, why would this remind me of Jesus? And you go, well, you're, you're a pastor, right? No, listen. There's something I felt so small. I wasn't exactly scared, but I was paying attention. Let's just say that. This is the way Matthew records Jesus' own words. He says, For as the lightning that comes from the east is visible even into the west, it will be the same way with the coming of the Son of Man. It will be awesome. Awesome. And just watching the storm and I wasn't going like, this is it, you know, like Sanford on San Francisco, oh, take me home, you know. I wasn't like, this is it, you know. I was just thinking, whoa, this is like a little piece of the reality of his coming. Like, as far as the east is from the west, you're going to see the storm. And there's going to be this moment of reality that we are so small. And this is going to be this, this, this idea that the treasure that we've been given, that we take for granted every day in our lives about the coming of the kingdom of God. If you don't believe me, I'm going to have you turn with me. I want you to read a little bit with me about this coming of Christ. It comes in the book of Revelation. It's the very last book in the Bible. Turn with me, if you would, to the, uh, the book of Revelation. Revelation 1, it's on 849 if you use one of our Bibles. If you brought one of your own, you should be able to find it. The very, very last book of the Bible. And uh, I just want to read, because we, we have this tendency to think like, oh, you know, it's, it's, it's no big deal. It's so accessible to us. But I want to read, and I'm going to start, I think, in verse... Uh, Verse 9, so check this out while you're turning. Keep turning there, by the way. If you have to use the index, use the index. There's no shame in that. Find where the scriptures are and read them for yourself. This is what the author writes in the, in the Revelation. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos. Listen, because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, verse 12, 
I turned around. Now, this is John. He's on the island. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. He was dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and he had a golden sash around his chest. His head and his hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell down at his feet as though I were dead. John's experience of seeing the risen Christ was overwhelming to him. He suddenly felt on that island of Patmos very small. He was, it's probably fair to say, shocked by what he saw. Overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus Christ. Flip with me, if you would, back a few few more chapters to 19. I'm going to read this other part because this kind of ties in to this, the Son of Man coming. Hallelujah. Chapter 19, verse 11. This is toward the end. Now, John's seen a lot of stuff, a lot of things in here. But this is the way John goes on to continue to describe Christ's coming. He says, I saw heaven peeled open, and there before me I saw a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes, again, listen, are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but only himself. He's dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on a white horses and dressed in fine linens, white and clean and pure. Out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword with which he struck down nations. He tread the winepress with the fury of the wrath of the Almighty. And on his robe and his thigh, his name, this name was written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Huge, overwhelming, the reality of God. And I don't know if you've had that experience in your life to where you've just been caught on, 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 not ready for that. But I don't, I don't, God forgive me for making Jesus too small, for making him so accessible as if he's not almighty God. So here at the end of the Bible, we have this revelation of God's amazing reality. So I want to back up now and I'm going to ask you all a question. The same God, by the way, there's no, there's, there's one God of the Bible. And so when we hear this revelation of Jesus at the end of the Bible, it's the same God that in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. There's no differentiation in the Godhead. And so 
I want to ask you all a question now. You guys have been around church for a while. Here's my question. What's the first commandment? What is it? Yeah, how is this? That's right. Thou shalt have no other false gods. Shout. Well, that's a great word, isn't it? <laughs> shout. Shout. Okay, I shout not. I don't know what. You should have no other false gods. What is, but what does he say before that? Huh? Do, how does he start it? Does anybody else know? Turn with me, if you would, to the book. We're going to go all the way back now to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 5. By the way, Deuteronomy is interesting because you can always remember where it's at because it's the fifth book of the Bible. Deutero, right? Um, so if you're having a hard time finding it, it's going to be very close to the beginning. Deuteronomy chapter 5. I want you to read it with me. The very first commandment. You know, our blast teachers and workers, they spent some time trying to teach our children the Ten Commandments because they were shocked to find out that they didn't know them, that we don't know them, the Ten Commandments, what they are. I'm not up here preaching law, but I'm saying that the Ten Commandments that are written in the Bible were the same one that Jesus was raised to obey, right? And so the, the Ten Commandments stand. Now read, read what the, um, in verse 6, how does it, how does it start? I want you to say it with me. How does it start? Someone. Yeah, right? I mean, the first thing that God says, and he's going to give you some rules about how to live here on the earth, but here's the first part of it. I am the Lord your God. I've told you all before that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D is significant in the Old Testament. It's a name, Yahweh. Some may say Jehovah, right? He's the creator God. And the, the reason that he can ask our obedience, the reason that he can expect us to be right with him is because he is the God that stood in the garden with Adam and Eve before they sinned. He is the one that walked with them, and he knows us intimately. And so whenever he says, don't forget my commands, he says, the first thing you have to remember is that I am the Lord your God. Remember the white horse at the end. The majesty of his coming. And you and I, you see, we are raised in this time. I don't think there's a conflict between science and religion, by the way. But I think we're raised in a time where we're so overly familiar with the reality that we live in that we believe that we figured it out without God. And his command is this. I am the Lord your God. You should have no other gods before me. What does this say? He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of land of slavery. I, I share with you often the Shema. The Shema is found in chapter 5 as well. It's chapter 5, or chapter 5, um, nope, chapter 6, verse 4. Sorry about that. Chapter 6, verse 4. And it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength. These commands that I have given you today are to be put, written upon your hearts. Impress them also on your children. This is our job as parents. Talk to them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. As I sat outside the house and I was seeing the size of the storm coming, I thought, am, am I ready? Is my house ready? Are my children ready for the return of Christ? And it was unsettling. Read with me, he says, tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your entrance gates. 
Why, why is God telling us to do these things? Because he don't want us to forget that he is God and we are not. That we're self-deceived when we think we're in control. That there's a great and terrible day coming when God will return. So I think it's interesting, he says, write them on the door frames. Write, write them, don't forget. Have you ever seen anybody that wrote scripture on the door frames? Any of you GC students defiling campus property? Just do it and say, Dr. Hartley, no, no, say Christina Smerick, is that her name? <laughs> no, say, I'm just being obedient while I live here. How many of us would do that? Go into our house and, and, and choose to remember. Choose to teach our children that the first command is the most important, that God is God. What does the word say? What is, what is the first command? I'm gonna try to do this with, with you here. He says this. I am. What does he say next? Lord. This is like Yahweh, creator. Later, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do what I command you to do? Why do we say that Jesus is sovereign over our life and our circumstances, and yet we don't let him rule? What does he say? I am the Lord. Yeah. And he says, write it on your door frames. Impress it on your hearts. Teach it to your children. I am the Lord, your God. And you go like, well, say, great. You know, what, what is it that's so significant? Look at what he says. Whenever he says, I am your God, I am the Lord, I am the creator, Look at what he says, I am, I exist. He reminds the Israelites, I am the God who brought you where? Out of Egypt. I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I'm going to ask you to flip there with me to remember this story. We celebrate this every time we have communion. We did it last week again. It's going to be Exodus chapter 12. It's before Deuteronomy, Exodus chapter 12, page 47. He says, write this on your doorpost so you never forget, you never forget who I am. Here we go, verse 12, chapter, chapter 12, verse 1, it says this. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is going to be the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, the first month of your year, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor. Having taken into account the number of people there are, everyone must be covered. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. Listen to this. The lamb... The animals that you choose should be year-old males, perfect, without defect. And you may 
take them from the sheep or the goats, take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they're to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the doorframe of the houses where they eat the lambs. The same night they are to eat meat roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. There's an idea here. It's like fast food. You got to eat on the run. Do not eat the raw meat or cook it in water, but roast it over the open fire, head, legs, and inner parts together. Do not leave any of it until morning. If there's some left in the morning, burn it in the fire. This is how you're to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand. Eat it quickly. It's the Passover of the Lord. Do you remember where the Israelites are? They're in Egypt. They're slaves. They're despised. They're put down. They have no salvation. They have no place. They're oppressed. They're hurting. They're scared. And God sends word. By the way, this comes at the end of the plagues, but he sends word and he says, do this. Be faithful in this. Look at what he asks for. He asks for a year old, a one-year-old lamb, a one-year-old goat. And you know what he says? This is crazy, right? Because you know, God knows how you think. I mean, God knows how I think. And if God's like, hey, Bill, I want you to give me something really precious. I go, well, this is my favorite thing, so I'll give you this thing over here. I just want you to see for a minute, there's this lamb. You know, this is their livelihood. This is their family's future. This is, this is the hope for them. Every year when they have new lambs born, it's like we're going to eat again. We're going to have more lambs next year. And Jesus, our and God here says, take your best, not the leftovers. Take the one that you love Listen now. He said, take a year old lamb on the 10th day and keep it in your house until the 14th. I want you to think about that as a family, man. What in the world? Your kids are in there. Look, it's our lamb. We love this one. He's the cutest. He's the prettiest one. He's so soft. He's beautiful. And you know if you're Israelite and you're trying to be obedient to God, you're thinking, oh, God, don't let him fall in love with it because I'm going to have to kill it in four days. He says, prepare it and eat it, consume it, and get ready, because I'm going to pass over. Give me your best. Give me the thing that's more precious than anything to you, your future. I'll remind you, by the way, that the threatened plague, lest you think they're getting a bad deal, is that God was going to go through the land and take the firstborn child. I told you earlier, my treasure has a room in the basement. That's not the way we planned it. That's just because he's a teenager. He's the safest one in my house. So here we are living, claiming Yahweh is our God. As a matter of fact, we're crying out. We're saying, God, save us. God, deliver us. We're in slavery. We have no way to go forward. And he says, 
do this and get ready. Eat fast because I'm coming. So they do. The obedient ones, it doesn't say, by the way, they all do. But those who are obedient, those who what? Fear the Lord. Those who know a reality is coming that we cannot deal with on our own. They are obedient. And they have to answer the kids when they say, Dad, why did you kill him? Why did you kill him? Because the Lord asked us to. And then you go out in front of your house. Now I think this is so, and you start, you start working on the door frames. And you know, I don't know, like anymore when we do religious stuff, you know, we do like little bitty signs, you know, a little of translucent oil, a little something you don't see. We, we don't want to be too crazy. But you know, if you're believing the God of all creation is coming to redeem his people, you want to be ready. I'm sure the kids are saying, why? why? Well, like, we're the weirdest people on the block. <laughs> you know? Dad's gone nuts. He's out there painting blood on the front door. Making a mess. And then the Lord says, get in the house and wait. Stand here and wait for my deliverance. Read with me in verse 12 of chapter 12. This is what the Lord says. On the same night that you eat the meal, on the same night you paint the doorposts of your house in the blood of the lamb, on that night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both of men and of animals. I will bring judgment on the gods of Egypt. Look at what he says. I am Yahweh. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. Listen to the promise. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. They are safe in him. There's two things that he says about the blood on the doorposts. He says, first of all, you're going to see it. And you're going to remember you made a promise, God. You promised yourself that you were going to deliver us from this because you are sure he's going to fulfill it. You are sure he is coming. You are sure he is a great and awesome God. And the second thing he says is that when I see the blood, this is interesting, right? Because he could have been like, you know, just do it in your heart. You know what I mean? He could have been like, just, just, just believe, you know, and I'm going to know you. And he says, no, because I'm going to come to every door. I'm going to go right through there. And when I see the blood, when I see you've been obedient to the slaughter, when I see that you've done it in front of your children, when I see that you taught them to fear the Lord, I see a house that really, truly respects me as God. I will pass over when I come. Can you imagine that night in those homes for the Israelites? Can you imagine as they waited and listened and the winds came through? I don't know what great and terrible thing it was, but I know that they, they waited and they trusted and they believed. And in the morning when they stepped out, God had kept his word. The storm had passed, 
and they had been delivered. Check it out. The minute that the Israelites are delivered by the hand of God, everyone fears him. There's no more question about who's in charge. And Pharaoh changes his tune and he says, get out, get out. And the people flee captivity. The people are delivered. God says, remember, I am the one who delivered you. I am the one who saved you. The word Passover has two distinct meanings. The first is kind of what we think of, I don't know if you're like me, but you think that, that God was going door to door and he's just bringing vengeance, bringing his frustration, bringing his anger against people who have sinned against him and who are openly disobedient. And then he comes to the door that's covered in the blood of the lamb and he passes by, he hops. The scripture says he hops over it. But there's another reality to the Passover and it's one of, of, a, of a mother caring, a mother um, bird caring for her small ones who hovers over the door who guards against every enemy who seeks righteousness in the home and who plans to deliver us for his name's sake passing over is not just going by but it's this protection it's this reality and the reality for you and me is that what we see, because this begins, this begins the sacrificial habit of the Jewish people to bring the firstborn, the first lamb, the best they have to bring it to the temple to please God. But all the time he's saying there's one coming who is greater. And what we have in Jesus Christ, and the reason I want to share all of this with you is what we have in Jesus Christ is a covenant promise from God that all of these ritualistic sacrifices were, were for a day, but now for all time the Savior had come and he had died on a tree. And I'm telling you this because I'm sitting there and I'm watching the storm and I'm wondering, are you ready? I mean, are you ready for him? The storm, great and terrible, will come. And I am not trying to scare you. <laughs> I'm trying to be honest. He's coming. The word says that by his blood, we are healed. The word says that when the Savior comes, he will die once for all so that sins may be forgiven. And so I wonder, I mean, I wonder, are you covered? You know what I mean? I hope that you are. Jesus came. And he said, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus said to his disciples, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say if you're covered in me? There's a reality that we have in Jesus Christ that he is our most precious treasure. He is the only thing in the end that will matter to you. I don't know if you caught, before worship, we showed a little video. It's a song by Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash, right? Wow. Man in black. Had it all. 
It's a beautiful song because in the song, it's not his song. It was a Nine Inch Nails song originally. He sings with this reality of his own demise. And he says, if I could give it all away, I would for Jesus Christ. There's nothing more precious to me than Jesus Christ. And so today I want you to know just know that that same offer stands for you. There's no, like, getting right. There's no, it's just obedience to trust God to fulfill his word, to cover you in Jesus' blood, to pass over when the day comes. And I want you to know that today, that that's available to you. And for the rest, who know? What else do we have that's worth anything? I mean, it's the most beautiful thing ever to have Jesus Christ covering us. My prayer for you is like my prayer for my own children. Oh, that you would believe. That you would believe in Jesus Christ for salvation. Please join me in prayer. Today, Father God, we've come to hear the story of your people as those who are included. Father, I pray that for the hearts that are here that say, not me, not me that you impress upon them that it's for them. Father, today, as we just seek your grace and mercy in Jesus Christ, I pray that your spirit would move in our hearts and lives. I pray that we would decide to be obedient, that we would accept the offer of your son for our salvation. And I pray that in doing so, we bring glory to you and salvation to your people. I pray, Father God, that your name be made famous among all who believe. I pray that we would treasure you more than anything, life itself, our plans, our aspirations. That in the end, we would cling to you because you alone have the power to deliver us. And Father, in every way, right now that we're overwhelmed or afraid, I pray it's a fear of you, of your great and awesome reality in our lives. Today, as we come, have mercy on your, your sinners that you're redeeming by his blood. We pray this prayer in the mighty name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.